question. Where does the editor belong? Because usually they're at the very end of the assembly line. But what if they were in the middle of the action? The wheel is a filmmaking formula that's responsible for some of your core memories. Recognize any? Pioneered by Pixar, this storytelling structure is unique in one way. Everything comes from the editor. That's the soul of the editor, is being that guardian of the story. We spoke to Bill Kinder, who was the director of editorial on some of your favorite Pixar films. I'm saying (laughs) move the editor up in the process just a little bit. It will save you. I mean, here you have Married Life, which is one of the most beloved montages in the history of cinema. And this is Bobby Osteen, a legendary film historian. Together, they co-wrote Making the Cut at Pixar. It's four minutes and 28 seconds, and they had a 20-minute version. The motto is fail early. In animation, you edit first and shoot later. You have to figure out the story. It's iteration. It's letting it cook. Try to just get it out and see what's wrong with it. In their book, Bobby and Bill pull back the curtain on the key to Pixar's perfection. But we asked the important question, how can we apply those to our own work? This interview was recorded by the best video podcasting tool, Riverside. Honestly, if you're not using Riverside for all of your virtual meetings, you're making a big mistake. I've even been using it for consultations. As soon as we're done, I get to send them the entire recording. And not to mention the recording quality is freaking it's good. Whereas other virtual meeting services can only do up to 720, Riverside can do 4K. Which is why we like to use it for podcasting. And we love it because it records each audio and video track separately so that editing is such a breeze when we get into post. Which means our editor can get started on cutting it Almost immediately. And even if you or your guest has absolute garbage internet, it doesn't matter. Because remember that one time when we were in the hotel room? I mean, the call kept on jostling. I thought we lost it. But because Riverside records locally and then uploads, the call was perfect. And it's easy for the guest. They don't need to install anything. You just send them the link and you can start recording. It even says, like, roll out the red carpet. It's kind of of cool. Yeah, it makes me feel special. It makes me feel so special. If you're podcasting, creating video content, or recording online calls, then sign up to Riverside.fm for free and use code EDITINGPODCAST for 20% off. And you can find that link in the description. And we'll see you back in the interview. What is Editorial? You had story, the story department with the people who could draw beautiful boards and think through visually how to tell a story. And then you had editorial who could put it together and get ready for a screening. People realized the process actually is a real spiral between the two of those departments. It's a real dance. Instead of thinking of it as two separate departments, think of it as a combination of disciplines to make these great stories. It sounds like, I mean, for, at least from reading the book at the beginning, that the editor is the hub of this giant circular wheel of production mm-hmm. in animation and Pixar. So can you tell us more about that and how the whole workflow works? The editor on a live action film is the final writer on a film because basically you shoot first and edit later. But in animation, you edit first and shoot later. So the editor is in from the very beginning at the storyboard stage when they're pitching the story in the story room and giving input then. And then they're getting these drawings and recordings from the actors and they're creating these compelling sequences just out of rough drawings and scratch voices, which are just voices from people that work at Pixar. And so they're 
writing from the very beginning. They're, I mean, this is what we call the bedrock of the entire production because, first of all, the sound, which is not tied to picture, is crafted in a way that's that's entertaining without all that beautiful animation and the timing and rhythm and why those sequences work, that never changes. Once they decide they're happy with it at the storyboard stage, that's the bedrock. So even when you get into virtual cameras and final animation and lighting and beautiful sound, that that editor has really created that. The audience's involvement from the very beginning and everything comes through editorial and there's insane amount of media and minutia and they have to watch over everything. It's it's a two-way flow all the way through every little every stage whether it's sound whether it's layout so many iterations. So it's a tremendous amount of freedom that the editor gets but also a tremendous amount of responsibility which was unprecedented in the history of cinema. If you think about this hub of the wheel metaphor, you know, Bobby started to describe the different departments. It does start with story, and that's definitely the the longest lasting turn of the wheel, if you will. Uh, but then you've got layout, animation, effects, lighting, sound post, mastering. Think of them as spokes coming out of that hub that create this in and out from the editorial system. And this is why this metaphor of a hub and a wheel is much more effective for describing this process than, you know, a pipeline that is linear and starts with the script and goes to pre-production, production, post-production, done. It's not a line. It's it's around and around and all these iterations Bobby's describing turns the wheel. And and there's input all the all the time. So for example, if you're an editor on a live action film, you're in a cutting room and you get all these dailies and you're you can say, you know, I want another angle, you know, after they've wrapped the set, the ed- actors have gone home. You can't ask for new shots, you know. <laughs> you you can do that mm. in animation. If only edit editors in live action had that luxury because they're kind of triaging. You know what I mean? They're like we're working with what we got. And there's a lot of manipulation you can do to cover up mistakes, you know, sleight of hand. The way you've been describing it makes me incredibly jealous. <laughs> For me, working in yeah. what I would call reality TV in, in web media, what I get in the footage, that's it. And so I have to figure out what the story is on what they have captured. And so if I don't get an opinion, if I don't get a soundbite, if I don't get a perspective from that person and they finished shooting a week ago and they've taken down a set, well, that's it. I'm in trouble. What are instances where there's an iteration or there's a story beat and you're just like, this isn't working. What can we do to change this before we go into the actual animation? An editor attends the story pitch. So you've got a given scene, everybody in the room is, if it's a funny scene laughing, if it's married life, they're, you know, feeling the the feels. Then it turns into a delivery of images and scratch recordings for the editor to recreate that feeling that everybody had. It's missing that kind of live feeling in the room or been to like an audition you know, of actors before, but it's, they're always very positive, you know, like the, the casting director sort of force a laugh or, you know, like say, that's great. And story pitches, everybody's trying to be positive. It's a supportive environment, but then it goes to the editor and the editor has to really recreate that sensation 
with the pencil drawings, with the scratch dialogue on a screen. It just has to play. And uh, that's, that's a tall order. There are a lot of things that get lost in the translation. The editor is there at those story pitches not only to take in the, the plot and, and the intention of the scene, but also to read the room and the reaction of everybody that is feeling like this is either working or that might need some help or what. Um, so they have to take that back, make it work uh, straight out of their editing system. And guess what? The first time out, it doesn't usually work, you know? And this is why editors get the reputation for being fun killers or entertainment killers. One of the other re- many reasons why they have the reputation as being the entertainment killers, the cynical ones. I mean, you know, the Pixar culture is also very, very enthusiastic. Everybody's so brilliant, genuinely brilliant. So it's hard to be that. Okay, so this animator, who are basically actors, animators, so they create these incredibly, incredible depictions and gestures and funny things and moving things. So what if they do something like sniff a flower in a moment and it's so adorable and it it takes that extra beat but it's everybody loves it look at look at the expression look at the gesture the editor might say yeah that's really adorable but your the timing and the rhythm of the scene is off now because there's a tension that we're creating let's look at the overall picture what is the point of this scene what are we trying to achieve now I want to work with you and maybe we can make it a little shorter, integrate it, but we we may not be able to use it because I'm the entertainment killer, but I'm actually the entertainment advocate. Bill and I love to use the phrase, the guardians of the story. The editors are always the guardians of the story. You know, especially even for the director, they're so caught up. There's so much going on all the time. There's so much minutia. There's so much to pay attention to, to just... Be that reminder, like they're the audience. The editors are always the audience. There's an expression at Pixar called sequence-itis because there's so much time and energy and resources devoted to specific sequences. And they're like little mini movies in themselves. And you can get tunnel vision because the editor is 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 the one that is counter to that to look try to look at the overall picture. But you always have, it's, it, there's an, a great expression or philosophy in editing that I love, which is movie first, scene second, moment third. And what that means is every time you make an editorial decision, you think of the movie first, even if it's one cut, scene second, moment third. That's so you always keep the big picture in your head. And that's the editor's job. These ideas apply to all kinds of filmmaking. It doesn't have to be animation. What's interesting about animation is that it maybe because it takes four or five years to make one of these feature films or you know all animation is painstaking it kind of puts the process in slow motion so you can really dissect what what is happening and uh you know but how often have you received uh for any kind of project you're working on something that the dp was in love with you know like i did this in a wonder you're gonna love it i you know, the whole thing I did, I did uh 40 <laughs> second like move and I kept a held focus. I can't believe we got it. And then you're like, uh, that's not what I need right here. I can't use it. You know, it's gone, you know? So 
that's that's the that's the soul of the editor is being that uh, guardian of the story, guardian of the purpose of the seed. The motto is fail early. You know, uh, it's like try to just get it out and see what's wrong with it. Don't make it precious. That's definitely an approach is why we do storyboards and why we put them into reels and watch them like that, because you want to see, is this working this way? If it works as a pencil drawing uh, with a scratch voice, by the time you get Tom Hanks and beautiful lit rendered textured everything with effects and smoke and fire, it's of course it's going to be great. I mean, here you have Married Life, which is one of the most beloved montages in the history of cinema. And they had a 20-minute version. Really? 20 minutes? It's four minutes and 28 seconds now. 20 minutes. It was it wasn't didn't work at all. And that's fail early. And Pete Doctor, what is known for, you know, as Bill said, many directors have different ways of working, like Lee Unkrich, because he's a director and formerly an editor. He's very like everything is very pre-planned. He already preconceives everything in his head and he sort of has it all very, uh, it's more controlled and finished product very early on. Pete Doctor's like, throw the spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks 20 times. Who cares? Let's make it rough. Let's, you know, the bones of it were there. He didn't even know really what he was going to do at the beginning. He just like, let's start the story. They knew where they were going to end up. And, you know, as we talk about in our book, there, there were two versions that, that just didn't work at all. And one of them was the punching scene, um, which was preceded them getting married when they're children. And it was cute in itself, but it wasn't poignant because what makes Mary life so powerful is it's the things that matter to these characters that play out in the rest of the movie. And you know at the very beginning that those the boy and the girl she's an adventurous one and he's not. And you see their characters so clearly. They're so adorable. That's all you, you, you can go right into their life story after that. You don't have to have something cute. The second, the second version was extending their courtship and having them go on dates and balloon rides and bicycle rides and all that stuff. And it didn't matter. What mattered is they're building this home together. You already know they're in love. So you see them having a picnic and looking at clouds. The clouds become shapes of babies. They want to have a baby. The heartbreak of not having a baby. These are all sort of thematic, meaningful things that happen to them. And it only took four and a half minutes to show. And then the dream of having an adventure, which he has on his own later, it's all a setup for that he's going to fulfill the dream they never got to have. And just when he's ready to go on the trip and he gives her the ticket and now she's ill and she's old and it's too late and it all means something, you know, it's not just cute in itself. What I thought was so interesting when I studied that montage again was that they're just tableaus. They're very simple, most of them. There's only two of them that float between rooms. One is when she can't have the baby, and they float to, as as Ronnie Del Carmen says, we're hovering over them like angels. We're just watching this life play out very gently, you know? And then the pan over to her in the hospital bed. 
And they take so much time. That's the longest scene in the whole sequence is the hospital room. There's so many, so much coverage and so much time taken because it matters, you know. And I was telling you guys when we talked previously, I saw a longer version of it. It was only seven minutes, three minutes longer. And I wasn't emotional at all. And the fact that there's no dialogue is also re- the power of the image, you know. Just the music, they, they were going to have sound effects. And at the last minute on the, de- on the mixing stage, they decided not to. So they didn't even have sound effects. It just let the power of the, the eye contact and the, all those principles of editing that are so important. It's iteration. It's letting it cook. It's just like uh, writing, you know, all, all of these details that uh, got used and then thrown away that the audience never see. The filmmakers now, it's like they lived that with the characters. They lived uh, with Carl and Ellie going to the county fair and recording their voices on a phonograph. You know, no one saw that, but now everybody who worked on it is like, okay, it's backstory. It's like, we know these characters, we know their experience, and we're going to crystallize it for the audience. Hello, cheeky segue. There's a few products we would like to share with you. So take a look. Get funding for your content. That's it. That's what Creative Juice can offer. Juice funds have helped creators upgrade their gear, hire editors, or start the podcast they've always dreamed of. Which was amazing for us because we uh, really underestimated how expensive a podcast is. It's a lot of beans. But what's really exciting about Juice, though, is that you stay in total control of your content. Which is awesome because it's only you that knows exactly what you need for your channel. Juice just supports you with funding and resources. Think invoicing, expenses, income, and more. And Juice helps you with the worst part of being a creator taxes. Creative Juice is awesome because they have personalized tax prep tools where you can pay contractors, track 1099s, and categorize all your expenses automatically. All of those things you just said, I've never heard of. That sounds really scary. Juice, please help me. And we actually did just send our producer, Ashley, a W-9. All I had to do was type in her email. She fills it out and sends it back to us. We'll get a notification and boom, it's super easy. And that's great because the less time you spend doing taxes, that's more time for you to be doing what you do best. Creating. Go to the link in the description and sign up for Juice today at getjuice.com slash getfunding. We need to have a serious conversation. I need you to stop spending your entire day looking for music that actually isn't even that good. But Track Club is actually full of bloody great music. Their entire library is banger after banger and mash. We also know that audio is essential for creating an emotional world for your audience. This is why beyond having great music, Track Club has Mixlab, which allows you to use stems to customize it to your situation. For example, there's this documentary song that I really liked that sounded hopeful. But if I soloed the vocals, that sounded scary. Or I just used the mallets to create a build. And Track Club makes it super simple to avoid copyright strikes. Paste your channel's URL into Track Club and Bob's your uncle, your videos will be cleared automatically. My uncle's name's Dave. Guess what? They're offering your first month for free. So go to the link in the description and get your free month of Track Club today. You guys, at least at Pixar, you have all the time in the world. You have $200 million budgets to make these ginormous movies. It's absolutely ridiculous. But what can we learn as just storytellers in general, as film editors, and how can we take some of those philosophies that are your t- that you're talking about to make sequences better and even overall movies better? How can we apply those to our own work? It's so not about the amount of of money, the the bottom line total number. It's about the proportion. You know, however big your pie is, spend you know this much of it on editorial. No. 
spend spend this much. I don't know. Spend spend on editorial in time, in attention, in focus from the beginning. This applies to live action. Uh, Kevin Nolting, the editor of of Married Life, we were just talking about, says this. Why don't they do this in live action? It's crazy. This works so well, and it's so cheap. I and I've found this to be true. I've I've been out of Pixar now for several years. I've worked at uh, studios in Vietnam. I've, I'm currently in Paris working on television. The schedules are much faster. They're crazy compressed. Budgets are are a fraction of, and yet the editor is still essential and in the middle. And and one of the few things that I can advise in this rapid paced world is hang on, you know, can we just move the editor up a little bit? I'm not saying spend more. Don't worry. Hang on. Listen. I'm saying move the editor up in the process just a little bit so that they can help shape it and it will save you. You know, you'll you'll get better results for sure. But that effort up front and that um, sort of harmonizing of you know, the the reception of that in editorial, what it's done is going to pay off. The fallacy of, you know, we'll figure out the ending. Yeah, don't worry. Well, you know, we'll just it'll come to us. Don't ever say that. Mm. <laughs> figure it out. Forget about animation for a minute. Anything. Any and like you say, it's shooting on your iPhone, any live action thing. And it doesn't matter what format it is. It's that you have to figure out the story. So Finding Nemo, this was early in, in Pixar's trajectory, right? Andrew Stanton, brilliant filmmaker, said, you know what we're going to do that's different on this one? We're going to start with an entire script, which, believe it or not, hadn't been done before. They had gone outline, treatment, sequence by sequence, and built it that way. So that whole thing got boarded and put up on Story Reel, and... Guess what? It had the same kinds of story issues that they all have. Yes, he he was further down the field because he had the, you know, act one, two, three whole thing in mind. Uh, But he could also start to see what wasn't working, if not understand why yet, because he could see it up. He could see it on the screen. And that's the difference. You know, I think uh, filmmakers think, you know, if I've written a script, I can imagine what it's going to look like. Uh, and it's going to work. And the, the difference between, uh, the, the word and the screen, the page and the screen is so vast. There's so much lost in translation there that, uh, you know, think of these story reels as like writing with images and sound. As an editor and as a director, as a writer, all the creatives should really have to embrace how it's different because happy accidents, some of the most brilliant things in, in the history of film happened because of this, whatever it was, it could be a mistake. It could be just some kind of chemistry that they didn't anticipate, or it could be anything, but just being open to what's actually going to happen. But I still say you'd have to have an ending. <laughs> Endings are the hardest thing. If you have a great ending, if you if you know you truly have a great ending, it's there are actually not that many movies in the history of film that have great endings. We often like to workshop the idea. Hey, here's a great idea, and and then you start working on like the opening sequence of it, and then like 
you go and go and you go and you go and you keep working on it. Like, wait, but when does this end? So you're suggesting it's sometimes even a lot more easy of like, here's where I want the story to end. And then I work backwards to get to that point. That's yeah. a great way to do it. Sometimes you have to walk away from something, whether it's editing or writing or even directing and, and just step back and you'll be amazed at how objective you are and you may have new ideas and get input from others who are honest with you. The other way that editors get perspective, and of course this is like built into their job description, is they have to be objective. They have to be able to look at this same thing over and over and over and, and make uh, some kind of calibrated assessment. So one of the things that's built into the process at Pixar is these uh, audience screenings. It does a few things. It focuses everybody involved in in that lift and getting it to the point where, you know, we can put our laundry up and you can take a look. Um, and it also forces everybody to watch it with people who aren't that close to it. You can try to say, this is going to be great. It's going to be great. Trust me, trust me. But if a hundred people around you aren't laughing at that moment, you know, you you can't convince anybody that it's true. <laughs> it just <laughs> is what it is. Show what you got. Give it a couple caveats, like it's not color graded. The sound mix isn't there. And the music is tapped. But don't explain everything. Don't say... Uh, well, I wish I could have, and then this, but then that, and well, we hope the next time and put all these thoughts in the audience head, just hit play and feel the room. And that is a very powerful tool for advancing, for iterating, for understanding how is the work that you're so close to really going to be, uh, received. Once you get that feedback, what's the next step? The first question is always, uh, is there anything that isn't clear to you? Because, you know, we're talking all about emotion and how do you get the feels and the tears and the laughs and all the things. But if the basic storyline is confusing, like you can't, you can't get to the next level. So the first question was always, is there anything that's not clear to you? Anything you want to understand a little bit more? Any questions you have? And that was often really revealing because again, when you're so close to uh, material, you've got all kinds of assumptions and you may have cut something out that, you know, helped clarify, but now it's gone. And the new audience is going to be like asking questions that you didn't imagine anymore. How does ideation work at Pixar? Very organically, I would say. Here's, here's a, a clue. All of those films uh, came from the directors. Okay. A lot of studios would start with, uh, we got, we got a great property and kid, you're going to be a great director. We're going to put you with this great property. Go. The process started, uh, at Pixar with betting on the person, the, the leadership, you know, Steve Jobs, Ed Catmull, they're so brilliant. They would say, I'm betting on the person, not the idea. Okay. Give me your best three ideas. I'm going to give you three months to come up with three pitches of your best three ideas. Give all three of them your best because I'm going to pick the one that we're going to make. <laughs> you can't play favorites because that's that's the executive job. And uh, and so that was the beginning. That's If you think of that as the seed of the process as opposed to this other direction that I described of like, you know, we, we got this great thing and we're going to put it with this great gal 
who can do the thing. And it, you know, it's just, it's sort of trying to force something. Whereas if, if it's a story that comes from the heart and memory and soul of the person making it, you know, what, how much better are the odds that that story is going to land? It's so opposite from the studio. Like you think of the old Warner Brothers days, they had, you know, a bunch of screenwriters in a building, you know, and then people are under a contract. It's literally the opposite. To me, it feels like the studio, it's like they push you to think in your mind, in your brain. Whereas Pixar is like, let us think with our hearts. That comes from feeling, that comes from emotion. And I think that's bottom line what the story is. And so if it starts there, that's when you then ideate a really, really great story. Yeah. And more than that, it's more, it's like they start with their hearts, but it's also a story that they came up with. So it's something they care about. They have a personal mm. connection to. Yeah. And I think that's honestly the best motivator out of anything. Trash Planet. Okay. It was an early idea at Pixar. Uh, Trash Planet was something that Pete Docker thought up back in, you know, 1990 something, right? Like we're going to have this, uh, post-apocalyptic trash planet and these things are going to happen in this world. And the studio was like, whoa, that sounds dark and heavy. So it got shelved. It sat there for a while as one of those ideas to be set aside. And Andrew Stan came along later. Uh, they all thought this idea had promise They and they knew it. And they finally had enough credit in the bank, as it were, to say, you know, this actually is really what we want to do. Uh, and Andrew took it over and did a story reel, the first 20 minutes of what would become Wally. And he knew that if he could convince these people who were fearful of the idea that we would have a family story in a post-apocalyptic world, that there was character and tenderness and heart in this environment, then we would have a chance at making this movie. Yeah, that's a really great editorial thing too in on Wally because here you had you know Wally and Eve at the beginning in the romance. It's just them as characters and how to create compelling characters without dialogue but also with the limitations of their physicality. And they tried, you know, a lot of it was sound design is a big thing in terms of Pixar's value system and how much talent they have there to create a world. You can believe in anything as long as, you know, the emotions are conveyed. Axel Geddes told about he was a very young editor and he was very excited and he ran a sequence for Andrew Stanton. And he thought he was so brilliant because there were all these beeps and boops and it was very flashy, lots of sounds. And and he basically said to him, but there's no emotion. I'm not feeling anything. But he said it was such a lesson for him that, you know, it's like what I was saying about eyes and, and connections and what, you know, what were the sounds that made, that were poignant, that made you feel something. And that was crafted in editorial. You know, they took a long time to find that that sweet spot that keeps coming back to the heart it's not making it uh, realistic it's making it believable and if it comes down to what gestures what sound makes me have an emotion a big factor too is because sound is not tied to picture you know animation so you can do anything you want you can you can edit phonemes you can just do minuscule manipulation 
But what you have to be careful about is the rhythm of dialogue has to be believable so that you could take the air out of a conversation. You could speed it up too much. They they had a problem of finding Nemo at one point because it was just they took the air out. It was like rat-a-tat funny, you know, and you didn't have time to as an audience to to respond to it in a way that you could relate to. I come from music video editing and a lot of live action editing, and there's so much inherent rhythm in the footage that you get. So every single action, every single way that like the performer moves their head or blinks or like does something that's already ingrained. That's, you know, burnt into the video. And the fact that you're thrown into this void where you're not only editing the footage, you're editing the acting as well. You're editing every single syllable of the performance and you're editing every time a character blinks, every time somebody turns their head or walks from here to there. And that absolutely blew my mind. Part of that is something that I didn't never heard of before I started working on this book, which is vocalizations. It can be anything. It can be even a laugh, something in between that, that may be captured on a real set that's not the actual words. That, that fills out the landscape of sound that makes it believable, you know, that we don't even think about. And they have this, this library of this stuff. And, and these editors start to become very attuned to, like, what they need and what they, you know, it's it just a, it's a whole level of skills, a skill set that you just develop when you're, when you're working in this void. Bobby and I ask every editor we interviewed for the book, where do you start? You're floating in a void. How do you begin? And there's no one answer. You know, they all have their approaches. And a lot of times each editor has multiple approaches depending on what what am I trying to tackle here? What's my what's my sequence? This is the first book that's ever been written about an animation editor. And I think the more we, you know, Bill and I started out and we felt that way more and more, but you know, we really wanted to shine the light on these people because they're amazing. It's so exciting, but it's so hard too, you know, and I'm just in awe of them. All editors are underappreciated and misunderstood, but times a hundred with these guys. And they're, you know, people thought that, you know, the, you probably know the stereotype is, oh, it must be easy to cut animation. You drop, cut the heads and tails off the shots and drop them in. Well, that was based on history because in cell animation days, the editor was called the cutter and they didn't have any creative contribution. But but there's such a prejudice against them. And it's I mean, it's getting better. People are you know, the lines are blurring between animation and live action. There's so much animation in live. It's you know hard to separate anymore. So I think. It's helping them get more known, but we are the first ones to really like deep dive into, you know, not saying it's just about Pixar, finding this world where they could show all their powers, but they you can do it anywhere. But this was the perfect way through this studio where there is so much freedom and creativity and resources to really show them at their best. In creating this book, Bobby and Bill, you had the opportunity to interview so many editors and talk to some of the best creative minds in animation, in film in general. What would you say to, to your past self and what would you say to the younger generation wanting to come up in the film industry? Do what you love, you know, uh, find your passion. Um, that's how I got into editing is I, I loved film from I was a, a 
dating myself. I was a super eight brat. You know, I loved, I loved just the idea of, wow, we can make pictures. And then I discovered that with my mom's scissors, I, I could actually cut out the bad part and the, the effect of the horror moment that we were trying to create as 12 year olds would work, you know, like, so I think we're kind of past that now. Everybody knows that that's a real thing. Always take stock of, of the people around you. All these filmmaking efforts are collaborative, right? You're not going to make anything on your own. Um, so make sure that the people you're with inspire you and, and feed you. I'll just take a moment and say, I'm so grateful that I got to work with Bobby Osteen on this book, right? Like we had a great collaboration for years. We won't say how many had totally different styles. We totally balanced each other, um, and, and brought different stuff to the project. We started out, you know, with Bill is addressing passion. Everything is passion. If you're passionate about something, it's amazing how much how powerful that is. You have to be open and you have to be know what you want, but you also have to find people that are going to help you. Previous to this, I wrote two other books about live action editing. I've done a lot of events with editors. I've interviewed probably 75 live action editors who were all successful. So what's interesting about that is to find the commonality, like what is their secret, you know? Why are they all so successful? And their journeys were completely different, obviously, you know, and they're completely different people, but there are a few things that they all had in common. And one of them is they really had to make a decision that they wanted to be editors because it's hard. And it takes a long time and and it, the hours are long and it's you're not going to get a lot of um, public acknowledgement. You have to accept that. You know, there is a lot of minutiae. You're in a dark room. You're compromising a lot. But these editors, you, I, I've met, I think, one or two editors are retired. Nobody retires. Wow. They just keep going. Yeah. Like, if you have that passion... Obviously, luck and timing play a big role in, unfortunately, in life. Falling in love, career success, all those things, right, that you can't control. You increase the odds for success when you're driven and you're passionate and you really care because people pick up on it. And that's what I noticed about all these success stories is that they they worked really hard. They were really driven. They really cared. And somebody noticed it. And gave them a break. And that's how they all became successful. For example, Carol Littleton, who's who's my mentor, actually, and she edited E.T. and Body, she's this amazing editor. She says when she interviews editors, people think to be assistants or apprentices, she says people think they have to tell you all about what they've done and, you know, impress you with their resume. She says what I want to hear from them is how much they care about working on this project and how much they care about editing. Because what people don't talk about a lot is assistants and apprentices in a cutting room are the first people the editor shows their work to. They want to know, they actually care about your opinion. So if you have really interest, if you are really involved in cinema and, and watch a lot of cinema and care about cinema and really care about editing, and you start talking in an intelligent, passionate way about editing, Editors want to hire you because they're going to ask you, they're going to show you their cut, their sequence, and they they want your opinion, even though, even if you're like 20. I'm all for like 
taking care of yourself and in hard work. You know, there's a lot of abuse in these in these filmmaking environments and a lot of underappreciation, especially of editors. And as someone who, uh, you know, managed the editorial process, you know, I felt like a lot of my job was protecting and defending those people from the expectation that they would just get it done no matter what. Also, stand up for yourself, protect those work boundaries and and make sure that, you know, the exchange is fair for you. You should never be told when to sacrifice. You should choose when to sacrifice. Passion is so important. And I also would imagine a lot of people's passion would be to work with Pixar. You know, if you want to surround yourself with the people that you admire the most, the people that you want to think with the most, how would someone... Uh, get the opportunity uh, to work with Pixar. You know, it's interesting. It's dynamic. It changed over time. I was there for 18 years. So it wasn't the same at the beginning when I was like, hey, anybody out there, come help. We need help. As it was at the end when we had a stack of resumes of people who were like, pick me, pick me. So how do you stand out? And uh, one thing that I can offer is um, that... It gives you zero edge to say, I've always wanted to work at your studio. (laughs) (laughs) Guess what the people who are doing the hiring are looking for is how can you help me solve my problems? (laughs) That's what's going to make a valuable hire. One of the things about interviewing all these editors, by the time they got their break, they had all this experience under their belt. They because the other thing another thing you should do is if you want to be an editor, edit anything you can. Just just keep editing, keep doing it. Not only study other films and figure out why they work, but keep editing. Because I've had this conversation before with these successful editors. I said, What if you had got your break earlier? You may not have you may not have done that that amazing job on that film. Maybe you would have blown it. Because you didn't have the experience to really, so so all that led up to not only someone noticing you, but someone noticing you at the right time. It is like falling in love. Like, it's not just meeting the right man or woman, but meeting them at that particular time when you're ready for it. And you have enough life experience to understand so in this case, you have enough knowledge, uh, filmmaking knowledge, editing knowledge, life knowledge, wisdom, that you get that opportunity. Now you're gonna, you're gonna kill it. A lot of what I'm getting out of this is passion, uh, then patience, and I think we're coming up an alliteration thing. We need a third P here. And persistence. Persistence for the most fruitful career. Passion, patience, and persistence. <laughs> it's game over it. at that yeah, point. There we go. You got it. That's all you need. Thank you so much for this conversation. And if you guys don't know, they <laughs> yes. wrote this book yes. called Making the Cut at Pixar, and it's a fantastic read. So if you'd like to grab that book, go ahead and hit the link in the description. We want to make sure the the people that are listening to this, watching this, understand that there's 90 minutes of video content. It's not just a book, and it's a huge component of it because editing is about show and tell. There's over 40 segments of editors talking about their work, and you see the early stages, the storyboards, and layout, and animation, and you really get a window into their their process, which is unprecedented. Nobody's been able to do this before. Not only the first book ever about animation, but show and tell.